welcome back to the downtown den uh, on this monday afternoon and we're delighted to be joined by uh, the co-founder of urban splash uh, one of the best known property companies uh, in the uk of course and one of the best known property personalities tom bloxham welcome to the den and uh, it, it's great to see you mate and uh, an interesting backdrop that you've got for us today uh yeah i mean you can the clever thing with zoom is you can put these on there and i can take you around some of our sites we're working on later if you want with the backdrops but i saw this this was a poster stuck up in the back of um piccadilly station actually and it's by an artist um and it just sort of struck me as something uh, please believe these days will pass and we can all too easily get down and get depressed and get fed up but actually these days will pass and actually at some stage um in the future covid will be a, a glimmer of memory you know and it, interesting on friday was ve day and we all thought back to the war and i remember you know speaking quite vividly with my grandparents about the war and how that changed it in such a bigger way than covid ever will but again it's almost forgotten now and things you know do come and they do go and it's my experience most of life is not what hits you is how you deal with it that's actually important and listen, Tom, we're going to get into conversation about other things outside of COVID because obviously there's lots of people talking about that on mainstream media. We don't need to over-egg the pudding here. But nonetheless, always interested to find out how, you know, on a personal level, people are handling this. And listen, there's few more social animals than you. Um, so how have you been finding the lockdown? So, I mean, you know, as you say, I'm quite a social animal. I go out quite a bit usually. So I'm certainly missing going out. I'm missing your events. I'm missing other people's events. I'm meet, missing um, meeting going out with mates for a drink and seeing family. But actually, I'm coping with it much better. I'm much luckier than many, many people. You know, a couple of things. I've not got school-age kids. You know, I really feel sorry for colleagues who are working and homeschooling at the same time. is a real challenge. I'm lucky enough to have a um, you know a nice big flat with a nice big terrace. I can sit out and enjoy the sun, and you know in most of our urban space developments we've got big communal gardens, which is great for people to enjoy. But again, you know on the Zoom meetings you have, you notice how many people actually haven't taken meetings in their bedrooms or outside because there's no space. And so by and large, I'm in a, it, it, you know in a better place. It's actually my third crisis um, I've been through in business. So each one you learn a bit more from it and you actually just get stuck in and deal with it and so in a funny sort of way i'm seeing it as a challenge um as a puzzle um as something to overcome but also very very conscious that we're in a far better situation than so many people clearly people who are suffering with the disease the nhs and other key workers on the front line having to battle with it day in day out and we're in a fairly fortunate disease that you know most of our worries are economic ones about the business and Tom, just let's get into the story of your business journey then, because it's a fascinating one. Uh, it's one that I've heard several times, but never tire of hearing about because it is such an inspirational story, I think. Um, so let's take you back. Long ago uh, uh, Frank, you can't be paying uh, your, your broadband bills I don't know anybody else but I'm struggling man. to hear you and how you got into 
now? Can you hear me now, Tom? That's better, yeah, I can hear you now. That's better. Right, okay. Thanks. Thank goodness for that. I'm touching everything here. We've not lost anyone on a connection yet, so uh, fingers crossed. Tom, I was just saying that, um, you know, your story uh, as how you got into business is a fascinating one, one I've heard before but never tired of hearing. Um, so just taking you back to your younger days, not that long ago, um, can you just tell us how you decided that, you know, setting your own business up, becoming an entrepreneur, it was something that you wanted to do? So I suppose I'm an accidental property developer um, and fell into property by accident. But I've sort of always been a bit of an entrepreneur, or at least I've always done my own thing. And right from a very early age, I remember picking strawberries and selling them on the street, you know, when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 when I was a teenager, I was going to jumble sales, I suppose you call them car boot sales now, and I'd be the first one in there looking for the gold and silver to resell, and I'd be the last one back in at the end that any unsold penguin books. I knew I could buy those and sell them to dealers at a profit. So I've always been sort of buying and selling stuff. I've always enjoyed that love of business and doing different things. And sort of done all sorts of things from selling fire extinguishers to posters, I had quite a big poster business. I helped set up Bar Bar, the chain of bars. I had a nightclub called Home. I had a radio station in Liverpool. Um, I've done all sorts of different things. Um, but what I realized is when I was in, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, in the cities, particularly in Liverpool and Manchester, there was this a whole stock of amazing buildings that were overlooked by the property industry. And there were old offices that the conventional property industry said they would never let. I also saw there were a load of entrepreneurs like myself who were into music or running bands or selling jeans or doing tattoos and couldn't find any premises because again, the property industry said um, you had to sign a 25 year lease and it was all interested in the covenant rather than the user. So very simply by putting a, um, you know, together the interesting new entrepreneurs and the so-called redundant old buildings but we started to create a business with um, Jonathan Falkingham initially in Liverpool in 93, the Urban Splash, of bringing people back into city centre, using great design and re-inhabiting many of the old buildings that were lying to waste. And, you know, started with a single building, literally two men in a shed, and then gradually, bit by bit, grew that business to the Urban Splash um, you see today, 26 years later. And Tom, you know, when you initially thought of this idea of putting that sort of eclectic group of creative people together um you couldn't have dreamed of where you were going to take that brand uh, but nevertheless the the other thing that i would sort of pick up on at that time it wasn't necessarily seen that cities were the economic hubs of places was it cities were going through a, a time when actually they were in decline uh, and, you know, their better days were seen as being behind them rather than in front of them. Very much so. I mean, the cities of like Liverpool and Manchester, the population declined by as much as 50%. The very word urban was actually a negative word. It was urban blight, urban deprivation, urban task force, urban decay. Um, and actually, we were one of the very first companies to use urban in a positive way and actually call ourselves urban and, and, and make the most of it. But for us, cities have always been great places. Cities are places where people meet. And it's great, we all found it's great work in a home, and we can all work at home, but actually we missed that contact 
We miss the random um, meetings. Um, you know, why do all the solicitors hang out together? Why do all the musicians hang out together? Why do all the city folk in London hang out together? So those random meetings, it's, it's, it's having ideas, it's meeting with other people, it's buzzing off other people, it's finding people, finding inspiration, finding partners, and that's what makes cities really work. And I, th I think we were some of the first people to recognize that, to recognize beautiful stock of old buildings, but far from being redundant, we never let. We're just waiting for a bit of imagination, a bit of tender, loving care, and bringing them back into life. And whether that was buildings like Concert Square and Old Chemical Factory, and the rope walks in Liverpool, or the, um, well, I'm at the moment in Castlefield, the old Victorian warehouses, or department stores in the Northern Quarter in Manchester, or you know, more modern buildings in Usington and Manchester, or dockyards, Royal Yard in Plymouth, or the old Midland Hotel in Morecambe, or whatever it might be, we were lucky enough to fall upon, to stumble upon a whole series of interesting buildings from different years to be able to help regenerate those. And when you started the, the business, Tom, um, what were your biggest challenges in those early days? I mean, it's, ever, it's just starting somewhere, isn't it? It was raising the, the funding. We were two, you know, two likely lads from Manchester and Liverpool with no real track record. Certainly, I had no training in property. Jonathan was an architect. Then it was finding the funding. Luckily, I had a few trading businesses. By that time, I built up quite a big poster business, started from nothing. Um, I was supplying posters all around the world. I'd done licenses because I knew I place at the right time with the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses. I was publishing posters, supplying those. So we had a cash flow and that helped fund the property business initially. Um, and then it was about being treated seriously, I suppose, not so much from the property industry because we were a bit apart from them, but finding tenants. But actually we found there were you know, loads of people who wanted office space, retail space, wanted to live in the city centers, uh, marketing it, and then growing the business, finding land, um, and actually just and then, of course, a big challenge is finding great people and finding great colleagues to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the challenges that all businesses go through, I'm sure. But I think the, the other thing that I'd say, um, and this was a challenge, I suppose, but equally an opportunity, was that as you started to develop those great buildings and identify places in cities that you had an eye for developing into great spaces and bringing them back into use, cities started to find their voice again, no more so than Manchester. Uh, and of course, you were involved in that famous grouping of people that came together, uh, the McEnroe Group. Um, and, you know, that had a, a big influence, didn't it, on Manchester's thinking and how it regenerated and rebuilt itself after that terrible uh, bomb in the, uh, the mid-90s. Yeah, I mean, the McEnroe group, we call that because it was, you, you can't be serious, from John McEnroe. And it was just sort of a, a small group of mostly creatives. And uh, what was marketing in Manchester at the time came out with a marketing message from Manchester, which was something like, it's not quite so bad here as you might have thought of it, or it wasn't that. But it was something that we just thought was really mediocre and apologetic and, you know, playing second fiddle to London. And um, you know, most of our great regional cities have never been worried about which is the second city. We've always worried about being a great international city. And for me, the turning point in Manchester was probably, many people put it to the IRA bomb and the rebuilding after that. Some people put it to the Commonwealth Games. I put it earlier than that, and I put it to the Olympic Games bid. 
and actually when Manchester bid for the Olympic Games in the mid-80s, twice and lost actually, but even when we lost, there were tens of thousands of people celebrating out on the streets. Yeah. And the reason they were celebrating is for the first time, I mean, it was actually Bob Scott and Graham Stringer, I think, Graham, Bob Scott got Graham Stringer, the then MP and leader of the City Council, leader of the City Council before an MP to buy a suit. Yeah. And they were then competing and they realised that Manchester was no longer trying to compete with Birmingham or Bradford or Barnsley, but it saw itself on the world stage competing with Sydney and Los Angeles and Barcelona. And okay, Manchester lost the bid, but it still sort of that new pride. And that pride allowed it to go forward, to work with the public and the private sector working very closely together, to bid and win the Commonwealth Games, to be in a position where straight after the IA bomb, the following day, there was a task force formed, literally, and ready to rebuild it. And actually, to think about what Manchester can do better than any other city and go and do that. And I think, again, we've seen a very similar thing in Liverpool. I was very much involved with the Capital Culture bid in 2008. Yeah. I'm aboard there the whole time. And Liverpool see itself with a new renaissance, a new self-confidence. And we're seeing the same thing as well in Birmingham at the moment. And we've got a big site there called Port Loop. And, you know, Birmingham is really um, regenerating itself. And, you know, and I think as um, core cities, as central cities, we've got a real role to play in the development of the UK PLC. I mean, London's a great city. I never knock London. I love London and it's great for the UK to have London. But the UK is incredibly centrist. Uh, so much wealth and so much power is in London. And that's not only good for the UK, it's not good for London, actually. You know, and that's been, you see that in the way the house prices are increasing, the way the very, the very thing that made London great, the artists, bohemian, the culture, the mix of people are now being priced out of London. So actually it's great, not just for Manchester and Liverpool and Birmingham and the other regional cities, but it's also great for London, because the wealth of this great nation is more evenly spread. Mm. Uh, and the thing is, Tom, when you talk about Urban Splash, I said at the start, you know, described it as a property company, but actually when you think of that brand, you do think of a very creative company, you think of culture, you think of art, you don't just necessarily think of property. And you've identified there with those three cities that I know that you've got, you know, very close relationships with and you're developing things in. The way in which they utilised culture, they utilised sport in order to help with that regeneration of those cities. It's such an important part of what all of the cities bring to the mix, isn't it? It can't just be about economics. It can't just be about development. It's got to have that cultural mix as well. I mean, totally, you know, for all sorts of reasons. It's what makes our life interesting is what separates us from being animals, you know, the love of sport, the culture, the brain, um, the enjoyment of different um, art and music and sport. But, you know, also when people, when businesses make the move to relocate, of course they look at the availability of property and skill sets, but actually they come down to individuals making that decision. And it's the chief executive and she or he will make that decision. And that will be focused on all sorts of things, like where the kids are going to go to school, what they can do in the evening, how the city looks. And the sexier the cities and the better the culture, the better the sport, the more things there are to do in the city, the easier it is to recruit talent and the easier it is to encourage companies to relocate in those cities. So it's absolutely integral to the wealth of the cities. Uh, and of course, Tom, again, the sectors that you've been uh, involved in, both directly and indirectly, visitor economy, so hospitality, retail, 
Uh, and at the moment, of course, both are uh, struggling uh, in ways that we can only but imagine. And it's just um, looking at the screen here, because obviously we're taking questions from the audience uh, today. If you do want to put a question to Tom, uh, type it into the chat and we will get to it hopefully before the end of the conversation. Um, but a uh, question from Henry Davis is uh, how you think uh, the high street in Liverpool uh, will look in five years. I'll broaden that to how you think high streets will look generally, but more broadly and generally, Tom, um, what changes do you think may emerge? Uh, not simply from the lockdown, because actually what I've been saying to uh, business leaders and others over the last few weeks is that some of the changes that we're experiencing now have simply been brought forward. I think a lot of the stuff that we're doing now, we'd have been doing, but perhaps in two or three years' time. It's just that because of the situation we're in, we've had to accelerate the process. Would you agree with that? I think that's very much the case. And actually, the um, high street has been changing over the last few years. Clearly, um, the internet and internet shopping is a big part of playing that. And the lockdown has actually really accelerated that change. Um, and it's a one-way street. It's not going to go backwards. People talk about the death of the high street. I don't see that at all. You're, it might be the death of some high street landlords, and it might be the death of retail landlords. Actually, I see the high street going through a resurgence, and I see a very different sort of high street. And it will be a different sort of high street. And most of the staples we buy, and the big white goods, and things, the boring things we shop for, we will get online. Things we know exactly what they are and how they are. But what we're looking for is much more experiences. And you have more restaurants, more shops, more galleries, more barbers, more nail salons, more tattooists, more cake shops, more places where you can go in, where you can interact with individuals, where they're independent shopkeepers who give a bit of themselves and a bit of their brand. They make something that's unique and unique to them. And the only place you can find them is there, unless for the commoditized, cheap, international brands with the plastic fascias and make every high street look the same. So I think we'll actually see a different high street. And I think you see sort of part of proof of that. If you go to France or Spain or Italy or many countries, you find much lower rents retail wise and retail rents are much similar to office rents, but many more independent owner occupied shops. And also if you look at what happened to Manchester when the Trafford Centre opened. In a way, the Trafford Centre 20 or so years ago was a foretaste of the internet. And the Trafford Centre opened and different cities responded differently. And Manchester said, we cannot compete with the Trafford Centre on free parking or big floor plates um, or ease of shopping, but we can compete on experience. So Manchester started doing um, you know, Christmas markets, festivals every week, much more in the food and beverage, much more pedestrianisation, putting um, tables and chairs outside, decorating the streets, making much more activity going on, experiential. Other cities, perhaps other towns, perhaps like Warrington or Altrincham or Bolton, didn't react at all, and they were decimated by the Trafford Centre. And the same thing will happen, I believe, with the internet. So it's about finding new usages, it's about encouraging independent retailers, it's about coming up with new ideas, and they will see our towns and cities continue to thrive. Uh, and you, you briefly mentioned there, Tom, uh, commercial space. Um, again, we're all sort of starting to get used to this homeworking and, you know, obviously our teams are doing likewise. Um, and one of the big 
costs of run your own businesses space particularly city center space uh, again any radical changes you think happening there we see some changes. I mean, urban splash own about a million square feet of commercial space across the country, a lot in the northwest and Plymouth and Sheffield. And so we're landlords. I mean, I think it's an ongoing change. People want much more flexible space. They won't want to be tied into long leases. But I mean, actually, what we see is everyone's desperate to get back to the office, aren't they? So yeah. you <laughs> work from home, you do want that interaction, but the office will change. It, again, it will continue those changes we've seen before. There'll be much more space for canteens and for... Um, uh, your meetings and informal meetings. Uh, people will work more from home. I think now they've done it, they'll get used to it. And people will work perhaps a day or two a week from home when they're doing work where they need to get stuck behind a book and really study. But actually a lot of stuff we do, we want to interact with colleagues. We want to throw ideas around the place. We want to come up with new ideas. And so, you know, the office is not dead by any means. But and I think people will also enjoy better, nicer offices, yeah, with more communal space, which are more beautiful, uh, with outdoor space, with leisure space, with space to chill, uh, with space to intermingle. And so we'll see much more of the interesting office spaces um, coming out, and we'll see less of those um, you know, massive call centre type office spaces. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that the more innovative people in that space have already been developing that type of commercial uh, rented space anyway. So, you know, whether it be uh, you guys or uh, we, we rent space from Bruntwell, uh, you know, their new developments have big communal areas. So it's not only a case of you being able to experience uh, the company of your own workmates, but you're meeting people from other businesses as well. Uh, and as you say, Tom, I think that's what we're missing, isn't it? That sort of community uh, and that face-to-face. -face. I don't think there's there's any substitute for that, however good Zoom or anything else online gets. No, very much so. It is those random meetings, isn't it? And clearly, you know, if you can meet with somebody and do a deal with them, yeah. the office space is almost irrelevant because if somebody's in there. But it's not just doing deals, getting the inspiration, getting the ideas, um, you know, and that's, again, why culture is so important. Certainly, you know, for architects, for instance, the um, art galleries are the R&D departments. So people want to go around the art galleries to get inspiration, to feel refreshed. And so that's why cities work, having a mixture of all these sorts of different people. And the architects want to be next to the quantities of airs, next to the engineers, next to the artists. And so when you get a buzz of those different people interacting, mixing with each other, throwing through ideas, then you know cities begin to work and people, the economy begins to work. Mm. Now, as mentioned the word innovation on a couple of occasions already in respect of Urban Splash. Um, and one of the things that we were talking to some of your colleagues about in terms of the Wirral Waters development in Merseyside um, was modular housing. And uh, not only uh, as modular housing come on leaps and bounds from the days when some people may think back to prefabs, um, it's a lot different from that. Um, but equally, you know, what I've liked, what Urban Splash have come up with is this sort of self-design that you've got now for people who are looking to buy an Urban Splash property. Uh, and then the other side of this, Tom, interestingly, and of course there's been much talk of this through the lockdown, is the environmental, the positive environmental impact that uh, this sort of development has. Uh, just talk me through Modular and then talk about the wider uh, green issues because I know 
that you're a great, uh, you, you, you've got a great interest uh, in that type of agenda. So hopefully my background's changed and you can see no. some of houses. No. How's that for magic? <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose, how do we describe this? I mean, we've been working all sorts of different ways of construction and we've made our reputation from conventional construction and saving old buildings. But as we were looking at, I was looking around the world at how things have changed. And look how your, um, look how your telephone's changed. Yeah? And every time you get a new telephone, it's cheaper and better than the last one. You know, my first one was the size of a, of a car battery, it cost me two and a half grand, and it was crap. Or look at televisions. You know, television 100 years ago was extremely expensive, had a tiny black and white screen, and every time you buy a new television, it's twice the size of your last one, it's cheaper, it's better, and they're increasing, increasing, increasing. And yet our houses we're building actually are getting more and more expensive and often no better, maybe even worse. And so we thought that if we could actually build houses in factories, could we do something about this, about them making them more cost effective, about them making them better quality, better design, and let them customizable? And so two years ago, um, we bought the factory from a company called SIG PLC that were making our houses. And early on this year, we did a deal with Sekisui House, who I must admit I never heard of, but actually is the world's biggest house builder, Japanese company. They make 45,000 homes a year in Japan, bigger than the top four house builders in the UK, and most of them in factories, and Homes England, which is part of the UK government. So the three organizations, we brought the three organizations together, and uh, because we realized we were onto something, but if we wanted to expand, we needed some help and some support. And so we're making houses like you see behind me. These ones are actually in Birmingham called Port Luke. And the houses are made in a factory and we can actually build a house in uh, 14 or 15 days inside the factory. We then assemble two or three of these houses in a single day and it takes them another month or so to actually get them finished and then ready to move into. So we're working on sites in Manchester, New Islington, in Merseyside, in Royal Waters, about to, in Birmingham, Port Loop. And it allows people to customize the inside of the house themselves. So it's a bit like when you're buying a new car, you know, 10 years ago, you'd gone to the car showroom and drove away the one most suited you. Today you go on the website, how do you want it? Do you want a convertible? Do you want a three door? Do you want a five door? Do you want a diesel? Do you want a petrol? Do you want the electric or sort of upholstery? And the same thing with our houses. So these three-story houses can be anything from two-bedroom to five-bedroom. You can have the kitchen on the ground floor. You can have the kitchen on the top floor. It can be open plan. You can have whatever sort of finish, whatever sort of kitchen, whatever sort of bathroom you want. So it allows people to have a huge amount of control of how they're designing their homes. Um, we believe it will be the future. And, you know, a number of other companies like us working on it. It's hard work. Um, it's still slightly more expensive than building conventionally, but we're getting better quality and we're building faster. And actually, as conventional building is getting more and more expensive, we believe this cost will actually stay static or possibly even go down, um, down in price. And yeah, we're very, very focused on sustainability. I mean, two things really. One is placemaking. And so we want to make beautiful places. So by and large, many of our sites are by canals or in interesting places. The first thing we did here at Port Loop was put a new park in, doing a similar thing in Will. We did the same thing in New Islington with a new marina and uh, Cottonfield Park. Um, and we're also building them out of wood, which is very sustainable because of the embedded carbon in them. We're building some a flatter model called Mansion House, which is a sort of six-story flatter model made of CLT, which will cross laminate timber, super sustainable, super strong timber product, um, which actually embeds more carbon than you ever use in its whole lifetime. 
So very sustainable, um, very beautiful to look at. And, and I think the other thing, Tom, that you'd say is that you, you're always conscious of, of connectivity and transport links and promotion of, you know, cycle lanes, all that sort of stuff that Urban Splash have been the forefront of. And of course, what we've seen, as I say, over the past six, seven weeks or so, is this self-cleansing of the planet. Um, so again, uh, are Urban Splash and others in your space now starting to look at things that may be able to continue that cleansing? Has uh, there anything new emerged in recent weeks or is the stuff that was already down the line anyway? No, I mean, you know, very much so. And so actually, um, if you look at the places you most enjoy going around, whether it's Venice or the back streets of a medieval a village or the back streets of Mayfair, um, there were places by and large built not for cars, but for people. And when you look at the estates, housing estates we're building today, they're all built for cars. And actually even worse than cars, they're built so a dust cart can reverse around the corner. And so, you know, we actually have streets and cities built around cars. And when you walk around, uh, you know, I walk around Manchester every day, you see it's so much more pleasant without the cars being there. And the sunset is so much better and the air is cleaner and you can hear the birds singing. That actually getting our planet and our lives back in order and building places where pedestrians and people are more important than cars is something that I think is very close to our hearts. So in Portland, we do what's called a manifesto and all sorts of things. Let's make green streets, not mean streets. Mm. Let's get streets where your kids can play out uh, at night. Let's actually put more parks back in as the first thing we do. Let's make sure the actual physical building we do is actually really carbon neutral. Um, and say on, on our houses, there's more embedded carbon in them um, than they'll ever use. And of course, you know, the most sustainable building is the one that already exists today. And let's you know, reuse as many of those buildings we can that already exist. Uh, and the other thing, of course, that we've been talking about for, for many, many years now, you and I, uh, and has made some progress, but hopefully will make more, is that decentralisation uh, agenda. So again, you made reference earlier to the fact that we are one of the most centralised countries in Europe. And again, I think what's been apparent uh, during the crisis is that Know, places like Greater Manchester, like Liverpool City Region, and indeed the West Midlands, uh, through the leadership of people like Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, Andy Street, have been able to react a little quicker because those structures are in place. Again, Tom, I know you're passionate about seeing uh, these great brand names of Northern Powerhouse and Midlands Engine actually turn into something uh, and start to deliver in the future. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's relatively straightforward. You know, who should be making decisions about our streets, our neighbourhoods, our cities, our transport, our education? Is it people who live and work in the city and know the city and know the people there? Or is it bureaucrats in Whitehall? You know, and invariably, we want the people who we know who live and work and are passionate about their cities making the decisions about their cities. And, and you know, given trying different things and seeing which works and which doesn't work, and which works the best and learning from each other. You know, I think it's very interesting. You mentioned, you know, Andy Street and Steve Rotherham and Richard Lease, you know, different politics on some of those, but actually I think there's much more that binds them in common and separates them. And, you know, and all of them have got a real passion for their cities. And I think they're all making a real difference. 
and you know, in our lifetimes, we've seen this huge transformation of our great cities from being run down, depressed, you know, laughingstock to be in the areas now where the real thinking is going on, where the innovation is happening, where people want to live and work. And, you know, the um, cities are being seen as real drivers of growth and drivers of the economy. And I think we want to see more devolution, um, you know, and see things uh, really grow and trust, trust our local leaders that they've got the best interests at heart. Uh, and again, you know, we can harp back to the days of the 80s and the 90s. And as you say, cities at that point uh, were a little in the doldrums. But we're very much now, I think, at the point where cities, uh, provincial cities, should be seen as part of the solution rather than the problem. Too, too often in the past, Tom, I've felt that, you know, we've been going with a begging bowl almost, haven't we, to to Westminster and Whitehall saying, well, give us a bit of cash and we might be able to improve things in this location or in this neighbourhood. Uh, but now we need to look more ambitiously and strategically. So it's not just about connecting our neighbourhoods better, it's about connecting our cities better uh, and building an infrastructure that is fit for 21st century purposes. Very much so. I mean, I, you know, I remember when I first started in business, and, you know, probably Liverpool was worse than that, but there was almost a competition of which is the most deprived city in the country to get the most um, hand-me-outs. And it's very different now, and it's very different now, and I think each of the different cities has got their own agenda, saying, listen, trust us, we've got some great ideas, invest in us and we'll pay you back. I mean, the other interesting thing about modular housing is house building is a great driver for job creation because it's very labour-intensive, the jobs stay in the country, whereas clearly if you invest in cars, for instance, many of those are imported from abroad. The problem is the area with the biggest housing need um, is in the southeast. The areas with the biggest employment need is by and large in the north and outside London. But actually by having building factories where you can build the houses very crudely in the north and supply them to the place of housing need in the southeast, it's a great way of helping to level the economy and bring the wealth from you know, the south to the north and create jobs where it's most needed. And just bringing us right up to date in terms of um, the challenges that we face. And of course, last night, the Prime Minister's address, he singled out two industries in particular where he felt that it was important to get back to work. And one was construction, of course, the other being manufacturing. Um, now, that's great, and I'm sure we're all conscious that the economy does need to start to function uh, at least to some semblance of normality sooner rather than later. Otherwise, a crisis could turn into something even worse. Um, but obviously, that brings some difficulties as well. What measures have you had to take, Tom, in terms of ensuring that your workspaces are safe uh, for the team that you will have working in them? Yeah. So, I mean, we closed all our sites and our factories down straight after the lockdown and, um, you know, furloughed a, a large number of our colleagues. Uh, two weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, we gradually started bringing them back, but bringing them back on the site and um, in the modular building factory in a very slow, very controlled way. And it is difficult and we're having to, um, you know, get whole new procedures, you know, one-way systems in some places, separating lunch times, doing shift work. Um, doing various different um, proactive regimes and every site is slightly different to minimize social contact. 
and you know, I didn't think Boris's announcement was great yesterday, but you know, you have some sympathy for him. He's between a rock and a hard place, and we've got to get out of the closed down. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sat in splendid isolation in my office here, and we've got these fantastic communal lawns. And I see it whenever it's sunny, there's literally hundreds of people, or dozens of people outside, socially distancing, but sunbathing. And, you know, they're on furlough. They're being paid to be on furlough. And they're actually not only are they not working, they've been told they can't work. And that's all very well, but it can't go indefinitely because it's actually costing all of us a, a, a fortune to support that. And we need to find ways to bring, and we want, you know, people want to get back to work. And so actually overwhelmingly, it's been a positive response from colleagues. They want to get back to work. The country needs houses desperately. You know, it's great that we're building much needed houses. Um, it is difficult, um, but you know, we are looking at every aspect um, of what we're doing to make the workplaces as safe as we possibly can. Albeit all our office staff, which is you know, half our colleagues are still working from home. Now, of course, some you've clearly been very active in the Northwest for much of your career but uh, you've mentioned Birmingham on a couple of occasions and I know we've got some colleagues from uh, the Midlands with us today. Um, just tell us a little bit more about your Birmingham development if you will. So yeah I mean now we're in the house we want to be developing all around the country. In Birmingham we've got an amazing site which you can see behind me um, which is 41 acres with a canal running the whole way around the outside of it. It's called Port Loop. And actually, most people, even Brummies, didn't realise it was an island in the middle of Birmingham city centre. The island's a canal running the way around the outside. We're developing it. We're probably about a quarter of the way through. We've delivered about 100 homes. We've got going to be about 1,000 in total. So we're working our way through it. But actually, it's only like 10 minutes walk from Brindley Place. Mm. Um, and it's a bit like, if you like, New Islington in Manchester or Will Waters in the Merseyside. But we've got an ambition to bring our homes across the country. So as well as in Birmingham, We've got a site in Milton Keynes we're about to start work on. We're working in North Stowe near Cambridge, where we've just got plan permission. We've got a big site in Plymouth, the Royal and Yard. We finished a site in Bristol, Lakeshore. We finished a site in the northeast, Smithstock, um, just past Newcastle. And um, we're on with Park Hill in Sheffield. We've got a real desire to be working up and down the country, um, building you know, much needed homes uh, on a variety of tenures as well for rent and for sale ample shared ownership and help to buy to as many people as we can. And, and anyone who hasn't seen the, um, the, the Birmingham development in particular, because obviously you're very kind enough to come and share some of the images with us as a live event uh, at the start of that project. Fascinating. And as you say, many Brummies didn't know that uh, the, the opportunity that existed really uh, in that space. And it's great to see it, uh, it developing. So, uh, yeah, if you've not seen it yet, um, go down and have a look. It's it's very impressive. Tom, you mentioned as well early in the conversation, this is the, the third sort of big crisis that you've faced uh, in business. Um, so let me ask you this. How, how does this compare? Uh, and again, I suppose, you know, a guy who's much more famous than, than me, even you, um, once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, because, you know, there are always some opportunities uh, when we come out of these things. Just tell me, as, firstly, as I say, how does this compare to the last two occasions when we saw downturns? Well, they're all very different. In the 80s when we started, late 80s, early 90s when we started, the crisis was one of demand. The 
property was there, the funding actually was there, but they believed nobody wanted to take the property up. Uh, the economy was declining. And for us, that was a great opportunity because we were able to buy these amazing buildings that were being demolished and people were demolishing them for the value of the timber and brick in them, buy them very cheaply, find new uses and help establish Urban Splash um, as a force to be reckoned with. Global financial crisis was very different. Demand was still there, actually, and occupancy still stayed over 90% all the way through it. The issue there was finance, and you couldn't borrow any money. Again, that was an opportunity for us, and out of that opportunity, we found new partners, like Places for People, we got a joint venture with, like the William Pears organization, um, which helped fund things. So again, new opportunities came out of that one. And then particularly property is a cyclical business. It goes up and it comes down. So we thought for a number of times, you know, that it, was only, it wasn't, will there be another recession? It was when there will be it. And I also was saying quite publicly that it'll be different. I didn't guess at all it'd be caused by this. <laughs> so this one is very different and clearly is one about um, movement and about uh, you know, one caused by a disease. This is going to be very serious, I think. We are going to see more unemployment. We're seeing more unemployment already. The skies is furlough. We're going to see a very deep recession, possibly even a depression. I think the difference with this one is it will be relatively short-lived. We will find um, there will be a cure for COVID. There will be a vaccine. We will get herd immunity, you know, any one or three of the below. So it will be over after, you know, in the foreseeable future. Now, whether that's three months or three years, I don't know, but it will finish. And when it finishes, there will be a bounce back like there usually is. So it's about surviving, it's about getting through it. It's also about learning what we can learn from it. And, you know, we've all got far better at Teams and Zoom and mobile working. We've made us more efficient and made us appreciate each other and our colleagues much more. So there's lots we can actually learn. We will come out of it lean organizations. Sadly, a number of companies will um, fail and will collapse. And I think a number of those were companies, I think the Times described them as zombie companies. Mm. They were probably fairly weak anyway, and this will be the... Um, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and so there will, you know, certainly we're already seeing less opportunity, uh, less competition when we're bidding for land. We're bidding as a land, we're looking for land all over the country. Um, and we will sadly see some competitors as, you know, everybody in every business will see fall by the wayside, which will leave opportunities for others. Mm. I, I think, Tom, that we've got to a situation where, you know, last night Boris has made a statement uh, can you still hear me, Tom? Because you... I can hear you fine. Really great. Um, you know, Boris has made a statement. I think we were all a little underwhelmed, probably as much to do because of the big build-up as anything else. You know, I was expecting some some sort of definitive answer on one or two things. Um, nonetheless, listen, it's a, a hell of a task he has, and the government has to get this balance right between, you know, keeping people safe in terms of protecting them from the virus. But I'm starting now to, to grapple with the other problem, which is going to be if we continue in lockdown for too long, um, we're actually going to damage the economy to such a point that people's health is going to be damaged in other ways. And that will mean, as you say, mass unemployment. It will mean anxiety and mental health issues. Difficult though it is, Tom, um, what would you consider to be a reasonable time in which we can continue along the path that we are at the moment without it having an absolutely catastrophic impact on the economy yeah i mean you know i don't know and i'm certainly not an expert and I, you know i don't want to give a judgment um 
I think wherever we can, we need to get people back to work where they can work safely. I think we need to um, we need to grow the economy. I think the really sad part is actually like so much of the last 20 years, the people who are hardest hit are by and large the poorest people who haven't got, you know, at school, they haven't got access to the support on the tutoring. They're the people who are working in the key industries, in the care homes, in the buses, on the tubes, uh, looking after us, supporting us in the NHS. And, you know, sadly, as with so many of these things, um, the rich are able to survive in a better way because they're better prepared for it. And the um, less well-off and less equipped end up being the hardest hit by these crises. So I think, you know, for everybody's sake, we've got to find safe ways of getting out of it. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting examples like Sweden, where they've had a softer lockdown, seem not to have been particularly badly affected. So I don't think there is any direct um, direct connection. Um, but I'm certainly not the expert. Um, you know, we've got to follow the advice of the government. We need leadership. But we also do want people to be able to get to, back to work as soon as it's safe to do so. Tom, last question from me, and then I'm going to turn to um, some questions from uh, the audience. If there's anybody else who's wanting to type stuff in, I can hear my phone buzzing as well. So people are still getting, they don't want to type stuff in, they text me. Um, so so uh, just one final point from me. Listen, again, we've seen um, this exponential increase, you know, this real interest now in terms of cities, the vibe around it, the culture the visitor economy that's grown. Uh, and, you know, you only have to go into Manchester, Liverpool or Birmingham now. There's a, there's a huge buzz around those places. Um, any fear within you, any gut instinct saying to you that we may see a reversal of that on the back of this virus? Or do, do you think uh, that we will, as soon as possible, uh, get back to some sort of normality? Um we will see a reversal of the economic growth i'm sure of that but that will be universal across the country and you know arguably hit london actually harder simply because it's more dense and more compact than it'll hit other places what i don't think we'll see reversal for is the growth of our great cities the self-confidence in our cities and i think devolution is a one-way street and i think the cities under good civic leadership have shown they can make a difference, have shown they can actually show leadership, have shown they can actually grow the economies. And I think once they've demonstrated that, um, they will continue to um, seek and acquire more power and more resources rather than less. Thanks, Tom. Right, let's just turn to uh, the audience then. I think we dealt with Henry's question earlier. Um, John Jackson is asking, will the future offer more opportunity to convert empty retail spaces into city centre apartments? I definitely think that the empty retail space and um, you know, shopping centres in particular are a great opportunity. And you know, in every um, era, there's a new opportunity comes there. Some um, shopping centres are now trading at 1% of the value they were trading some time ago. I think that model of retailers paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds per square foot is unlikely to be sustainable. So I think we will see um, more reuse. I think there'll be continued reuse on the upper floors as residential. I think the lower floors, the ground floor, probably won't become residential, but there'll become other uses. We've already seen that with barbershops and 
um, bakeries and art galleries and bars and restaurants. And you know, I think the rents will come down, and I think that'll be a permanent long-term solution. But that will enable more people to set up independent retail, independent restaurants, other sorts of emporiums, and things making our towns and cities more interesting places and things that make them more unique. And so people go to Liverpool or Manchester or Birmingham because of stuff they can find there they can't find anywhere else. And so do you think we may see, as we did in the 80s, actually, Tom, and, and it seems to continue and gather momentum, but more of those independent entrepreneurs emerge because, uh, as we've seen, often out of crises, you do see these talented individuals come forward, don't you? Very much so. You know, and again, you know, we start in business with um, Aflex Arcade in Manchester, the Liverpool Palace in Liverpool, and that was very much about gathering together um, a series of talented um, individuals, fashion designers, retailers, musicians, bands, producers, accountants, lawyers, all working together, mixing ideas, getting the buzz. And actually, you know, it created something really, really special and a real sense of culture um, clustering, I think you call it today, but, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, um, but it created a sense of that. And out of, you know, crisis, um, it allows new opportunity when the space is lying very cheap. You know, most people would not have had a chance of renting retail space unless they had a huge track record and loads of money 10 years ago. Now landlords are desperate to get all sorts of interesting people in there. So the opportunities are there. And I'll tell you, they really go and grab them if you want any good ideas. Thanks, Tom. Uh, next one up is Jonathan Wood. Uh, do you think that the high streets or town and city squares need to adapt and provide flexibility through pop-ups that change for the seasons? And is there an opportunity to have floor space that can be changed internally and sublet? It's a good idea, that, Jonathan, I think, Tom. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely fantastic. I mean, I love the idea of pop-ups. Um, and actually, you know, the, the only downside of pop-ups is sometimes they're bad while buildings getting refurbished. So the, the retailers do great and they get thrown out after three months. And so, you know, having the flexibility of allowing anybody to come in and rent space and is exactly what we did at Liverpool Palace, is what Quiggins did, is what Aflex Palace do. You know, small spaces on easy and easy out terms. Let young and some not so young entrepreneurs test their retail skills, see how it's working um, and give it a go. I think it's an absolutely great idea. And I think it's an opportunity for people to take over empty retail space and fill it with clusters of you know interesting retailers, and we see a fair bit of it happening with craftspeople, with um, you know all sorts of different um, people occupying retail space, and providing a real service for the cities as well, and providing something that people can't buy, or you're not on the high street, um, not on the internet, not on the website, but only by shopping in person. Uh, here's one that I've had text through to me from Jenny. Um, Jenny, for sure, I think that is. And she's asking Tom, or well, she's she's a compliment to you first. Um, Urban Splash has always been great at marketing and uh, positive branding. Uh, any advice, tips for people uh, in terms of that space? So, uh, yeah, it is. A, I mean, it's a great brand. And um, if you've not been onto the Urban Splash website, please do so because it's very impressive. Uh, but you've always been good at that sort of stuff, haven't you, mate? Where you've, you know, you've come up with catchy phrases, or you've been able to 
uh, disrupt the market because of that sort of big brash build approach. Um, so where does that sort of marketing strategy come from? So I suppose, you know, one secret of business, someone told me you've got to do two things. One, get the product right, and second, tell people about it. And so you can have the best product in the world, but nobody knows about it, you never sell it. Conversely, you can have the best marketing in the world, but if the product's crap, everybody will find out about that, it'll do you no good. So you need both right. Um, and for us, I think the branding is two things. One, we like things to be beautiful and to be a sort of personification of our homes which we, and workplaces, which we also like to be beautiful. But more important, a brand is nothing more than a promise. And actually, there's nothing clever about a flash name or a flash word. And if you think like a boots a chemist, it's called boots. You don't think of Wellington boots, you think of boots a chemist. But all it is is a promise. So if you buy a Ferrari, the promise is a sexy, fast Italian racing machine. If you buy a Mercedes, the promise is a reliable, luxurious, comfortable German limousine. And you've got to keep that promise. And so everything we do with Urban Splash is about being well-designed, it's about being cutthroat, about being funky, it's about value for money. It's about being um, you know, on the edge of things, about growing up, growing in value, uh, about being flexible. Um, and you've got to keep the promise. And it's a bit like going to a restaurant. You have nine good meals, one bad meal. Everyone remembers a bad meal and talks about it. And so for us, about being consistent, um, coming out with great product, having the product that people like and resemble. Now, I remember another one of my heroes is Terence Conran, and he once told me he'd have nothing in his shops that he didn't like to look up for themselves. He said, it's not because I've got um, great taste, which he did have, but he says it's consistent. And actually, you know, if you like his taste, you like everything that goes in his shop. And what you don't want to do is see stuff that's really minimalist and clean design one week, and then really fancy and over-design the next week. Uh, and actually, we try to be consistent with our brand. We try to be consistent with our design. So not everyone loves urban splash stuff. But if you do it, hopefully, the brand is a promise. will consistently um, give to you well-designed, value for money, edgy, funky, um, cutting-edge uh, buildings and workspaces. I think that's a, a positive note on which to, to end our conversation this afternoon, Tom. I do apologise for some technical difficulties we had earlier in the conversation. I'm sure the audience have enjoyed thoroughly the words that you've shared with us today. Um, just uh, before you go, um, hopes, aspirations perhaps for the coming months and years? So let's get out of COVID as soon as we can. Let's go and see our friends and meet up and go for a pint together. Uh, will be great. Uh, we are going to be um, badly hit. I think when this thing's over, there'll be a big um, recession, depression even. But let's get out of that as quickly as we can. Uh, these things will pass. We will get over this. And then there'll be a recovery. And let's all work together to make the most of the opportunities and do what we can to continue making our towns and cities better, greater, and more beautiful than we found them. Brilliant message to leave us with. Tom, and I know Urban Splash will certainly be making a massive contribution to those objectives. Thanks, mate, and hopefully see you at a live event very soon. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, everybody, for listening to us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thanks a lot.